When you live long enough in a foreign land, the land becomes your homeland. Tang Dynasty official Huang Xiao told his children this when he sent them away from home. More than a millennium later, his words continue to capture the experience of many migrants. For the past decade, I've come to understand what Huang Xiao meant. At the age of 10, I moved from Hong Kong to Singapore with my family. At first, living in a foreign land was not easy. Outside of my home, I had few opportunities to speak Cantonese, the language I grew up with. In Hong Kong, I only studied English as a second language, so it was daunting to suddenly study and live in a completely English environment. During those first few months in Singapore, I couldn't even comprehend the school announcements. I was also surrounded by new food, a new landscape, and new weather. Even when I shut my eyes in my new home, I knew I was not in Hong Kong. Birds chirping, the call for prayer at the local mosque, the wedding music and funeral chants coming from the void decks. The soundscape at my fourth-story HDB flat in Singapore was completely different from the silence I had grown up with in my 23rd-story shoebox flat in Hong Kong. But just as Huang Xiao suggests, Singapore's foreigners melted away with time. My English gradually improved, and I learned to appreciate my neighbourhood and Singapore's diversity. I also picked up Singlish, a distinctively local version of English. Singapore has always been a nation of immigrants, and for most of them, this foreign land eventually became their homeland. How did those earlier generations make Singapore their home? For many members of the Chinese diaspora, the answer was clan associations, or huiguan. I'm Chris McMorrin, a professor at the National University of Singapore, and you're listening to Home on the Dot, the podcast about the power and meanings of home in today's world all through the stories and lives of my students. In this episode, Ching Mei, a year three Japanese studies major, explores the past, present, and future of clan associations. Clan associations, or huiguang, are self-help groups organized by Chinese migrants. They've been established whenever Chinese migrants live away from their hometowns, even when that's within China itself. Throughout human history, Individuals living away from home have formed migrant communities, living together and supporting each other in their new homelands. Chinese clan associations stand out in terms of their history and their complexity of social networks. In Singapore, clan associations have existed for more than 200 years. In the past, they were job portals, social clubs, education providers, and even matchmakers. Today, clan associations must continue to evolve to remain relevant particularly as the government monopolizes most of the functions previously covered by associations. In this episode, Qingmei traces the history of clan associations in Singapore, and she visits one of the 300 surviving associations to find out how they have transformed in meaning and purpose over the years. How does a foreign land become your homeland? Stay tuned. As a deep water port situated at the entrance of the Straits of Malacca, Singapore has long been geographically important as a trading link between Europe and Asia. Under British colonial rule, the island flourished as a bustling trading hub, with tens of thousands of migrants from all over the region flocking to the little red dot in search of wealth, especially beginning from the 1870s. At the time, the colonial government provided limited public services 
clan associations served as the main pillars of support for newly arrived migrants from the Chinese diaspora. Some clan associations are locality-based and usually divided along dialect lines, such as Hokkien, Cantonese, Teochew, Hakka, and Hainanese. Other associations are trade-based or kinship-based, which often require proof of genealogical ties. At their peak, there were more than 500 clan associations in Singapore. An overwhelming majority could be found in Chinatown because the area was located right by the ports. In fact, merchants would step immediately off their boats and into clan associations to discuss trade. Today, the number of clan associations has dropped to about 300. Urban redevelopment and rental hikes in the Chinatown area have also driven many clan associations to the neighbourhoods further away from their original locations, like Jalan Basar and Geylang. Still, many clan associations can be found within the Chinatown Historical District. A short stroll can take you past Nam Hoi Clan Association, a Cantonese group, Chiu Ho Tong Kiong Wei, a Teochew group, Singapore Ching Kang Hui Guan, a Hokkien group, and at least 20 more. Twenty nineteen marks the two hundredth anniversary of British arrival in Singapore. In honor of this anniversary, the government has sponsored a series of public seminars on the vast changes since eighteen nineteen. The third in the series was on the history of clan associations. At the seminar, I met Mr. Wong Liang Nam from the Heng Jai Wong Clan Association. This association combines kinship and locality by serving members of the Wong Clan from China's southern island of Hainan. After introducing myself, Mr. Wong invited me to visit the clan association a few days later. I imagine a standalone one-story traditional Chinese building with a sloping roof, or perhaps a narrow two-story shop house with a single door in front and several windows facing the street. The Hing Jai Wong Clan Association office was nothing like I expected. It sits on the 8th floor of a commercial building on the east side of Singapore. Walking in the door, I found a fully air-conditioned space lined with office tables and chairs. The walls are covered with Chinese text detailing the history of the clan and its traditional values. Near the entrance is a 3-meter-long black plaque with the name of the association carved into its wooden surface in traditional Chinese script. It marks the long history of the self-help group. Behind the office, a grand altar dedicated to the clan ancestors sits in a spacious rooftop area. At the time of our visit, the office was still under renovation. My hosts were President Wong Tun Tong and staff members Wong Sun Lian, Wong Liang Nam and Wang Ti Kang. All four gentlemen looked to be in their 60s. According to the President, this unit is the first time in their 109-year history that they have owned a permanent property. In the past, they have been forced to move from place to place, renting and borrowing spaces. The clan association was first located along Holloway Lane, a now non-existent road, at the exact spot where the National Library now sits. The Hainanese chose to live together and look out for each other as life was difficult. As a result, they congregated in today's Bugis area, so much so that the main street was officially named Hailam Street, after the Hainanese pronunciation of Hainan. There were multiple Hainanese clan associations in the area. Even today, three Hainanese clan associations remain in Bugis. Today, Hailam Street is one of the indoor air-conditioned shopping streets inside the Bugis Junction shopping mall.
clan associations played an indispensable role in supporting the new and existing members, even providing temporary accommodation for new migrants and helping them find jobs. If a Wong clansman from Hainan arrived in Singapore and came to Hingjai Wong Clan Association for assistance, how could the clan association help? Back then, I guess it would be to help him find a job and a place to live in, get him a shelter, a place to live, maybe at the association. Those associations with enough space can let them stay. We can let him stay and help him to find a job. He stays until he lands a job and earns some income. Besides providing immediate relief like shelter and job prospects, clan associations were also important cultural agents. They organized seasonal ancestor worship ceremonies. They hosted live events like weddings and funerals. Some larger associations even set up schools and clinics for exclusive use of their clansmen. These services made life in Singapore easier for the Chinese migrants, but they did not forget where they came from. Historian Philip Kuhn has written that clan associations, quote, ensured that the adjustment to a new locale was accompanied by reinforcing hometown ties, end quote. The very fact that these services were limited to members of specific clans and locality means that migrants were constantly reminded of their origins. Migrants and their hometowns existed in a mutually symbiotic relationship. On one hand, migrants needed their hometown as a conduit to attain help. On the other, the hometown needed the financial resources that migrants sent back. The president recalled the enthusiasm that earlier generations of Hainanese demonstrated for the development of Hainan. China was poor 30 to 50 years ago. We originate from there. My grandfather and father were born in Hainan, so they kept in contact with the town. They went back every year and helped out. They also sent money back to support construction of schools, roads and hospitals. The level of interaction between clan associations and their hometowns has changed in recent decades. As previous generations have passed away and as China has become an economic giant. Would you say that there has been less interaction between China and clan associations overseas because of the country's development? Because clan associations do not seem very necessary for development now. Yeah, that played a part. We used to donate money to build roads into the villages because there were people living there. Nowadays, young people do not live there anymore. They have moved to either towns or cities. So there are fewer people in the villages that we build roads to. There used to be about 30, 40 households in the village. Now only about 7 or 8. So there has been a reduction of contact between the village and us. The main reason for the reduction of contact is the passing of our grandfathers and fathers, and the passing of their grandfathers and fathers. We younger generations do not feel as strongly for the village because we were not born there. We do feel something because our parents brought us to visit the village. But we do not live there after all. We do not have friends there. We only know some people because our parents introduced us to them. Indeed, the two generations of Chinese, those born in China and those born in Singapore, shared a very different sense of home. For the earliest generations, Singapore was simply a temporary working destination. These migrants' sense of home was directed more towards the villages in China, 
where they expected to eventually return. For instance, Mr. Wong Sun Lian said his parents always wanted to return to Hainan. Our parents always say that we will return home after a few more years of work and savings. We will go back to Hainan. Many first-generation migrants were men, coming to Singapore alone to seek their fortunes. But they eventually settled down, sometimes finding wives through the clan association. For their children and grandchildren, who were brought up in Singapore, China evokes little sense of home. How do Hainanese born here feel about Hainan? Do you still see Hainan as home? <laughs> Our home is here. We have settled down. Hainan to us does not evoke much sense of nostalgia. Yes, we are Hainanese, and Hainan was where our parents and grandparents were born. We have been there and worked with people there. But that's it. It is not like we want to spend our retirement there. That is not something we consider. For my parents' generation, Hainan is their first home. Singapore is a temporary host. But when it comes to my generation, Singapore is my first home. Hainan is my second choice. And for my children's generation, they do not see Hainan as home at all. While sojourners wished to return home to China, their descendants are Singaporeans with a locally-oriented sense of identity. This generational shift in identity is closely related to the transformation that Singapore and its people have undergone. In 1957, the government passed the Citizenship Ordinance. This allowed Chinese migrants in Singapore to change their status from overseas Chinese to Singapore citizens. Nearly a decade later, Singapore gained independence. Since then, the government has stepped up to provide more public services and to promote a Singaporean identity. Clan associations are no longer vital places for people to search for work, socialize, and maintain contact with their ancestral hometowns back in China. Several language policies have also weakened the linguistic ties between Singaporean Chinese and their hometowns. In the past, Chinese dialects were a major glue tying locality-based groups together. But in the 1980s, Singapore restricted Chinese dialects by banning them from broadcast and simultaneously promoted Mandarin as an official language. This gave birth to a more unified Chinese ethnic identity. The identity negotiation didn't stop there. The use of English as a standard method of instruction and the designation of one's mother tongue as a second language in school limited Singaporeans' exposure to their respective linguistic and cultural roots. The weakening of this ancestral identity stands in stark contrast to the strengthening of national identity. Every day in every primary and secondary school in Singapore, students recite the pledge in unison. On every Total Defence Day and National Day, we were reminded of the blood, sweat and tears that our forefathers shed to build the city-state we live in today. And we are asked to contribute to the continual prosperity of the country. Today, Singaporeans, regardless of background, see themselves as primary stakeholders of this city-state. Given the declining significance of clan associations as bridges between migrants and their hometowns, many of the clan associations have rebranded themselves as promoters of Chinese culture. 
The Heng Jai Wang Clan Association now focuses on encouraging interaction among clan members and fostering traditional Chinese values such as filial piety, loyalty, and etiquette, which are deemed definitive of Chinese identity. What is the significance of clan associations in the modern era? I think the significance of clan associations is particularly high in the modern era. Why? In the past, we all spoke dialects, and through dialects, our parents inculcated us with knowledge, say, traditional values, principles to live by. Our parents have always taught us values. Xiao is filial piety. Ti is love between siblings. Zhong is about loyalty. Li Yi Lian Chi. Li is about etiquette. Yi is righteousness. Lian is incorruptibility. Chi is a sense of shame. Nowadays, there is little chance to impart such values because everybody speaks English. There are fewer opportunities to speak dialect. So the new mission of our association is to continue traditions, to pass on what is valuable, what is traditional, the values that are good. How to go about doing it? Through regular interaction, regular activities, and through festivals like Mid-Autumn Festival, Dragon Boat Festival, New Year Reunion, events when people get together. From functional agents connecting migrants to their hometowns abroad, the Hingjai Wong Clan Association has evolved into a promoter of Chinese traditional values. Why the focus on values? For Chinese migrants who still trace their roots to faraway land, these values are aspects of home their ancestors brought with them. The values connect them to places and people left behind. As current members pass on these values, they reaffirm their identity and recall their past home, while not denying their current home in Singapore. The Hengjai Wong Clan Association has reinvented itself to be a center to pass on Chinese cultural values. But it is only one of hundreds of associations in Singapore and around the world. What are other associations doing? I met with Professor Kenneth Dean, head of the Department of Chinese Studies at the National University of Singapore and an expert on Huiguang, to get a better sense of the scale of these associations and how they're changing with the times. Of course, we are talking in this podcast about these associations here in Singapore, but of course they were all around Southeast Asia. Uh, do you have an idea of the, the geographical scope of... Oh yeah, that's all, there's, there's now worldwide associations, and this is the latest development, uh, where especially the clan associations are capable of creating worldwide uh, networks. And bringing all kinds of people back to supposed founding uh, ancestral halls in central China. Mm. Uh, it's not really important whether they really were descendants of that original <laughs> family line. But the fact you can, the deeper you go, the, the less likely the connections are. Okay. But the broader the connections, the better the networking and the bigger the party. Uh, so uh, this is also a phenomenon that we're seeing all over uh China and Southeast Asia and around the world now. So clan associations are particularly active at this point in doing this type of worldwide networking. Is this a generational? Uh, it's partly a feature of events, transportation, and communications in the modern age. Mm -hmm. And partly it's 
a response to the destruction of a lot of the lineage structures within China during the last half of 20th century. That has allowed for a lot more creative construction of associations at various levels. And so there's a huge boom now in China of people rewriting genealogies. Uh, the thickest book on my bookshelf is one of them. Uh, that's the, the Sarawak Leos, who uh, <laughs> claim to have thousands of relatives. But uh, already a long time ago, the anthropologist Tenru Kang showed that a lot of Southeast Asian clan associations have created fictive ancestors to link truly, actually unrelated branches of the same surname together mm-hmm. in, an, in a tomb with nothing in it. Uh, in front of which you can do rituals because that brings you into association. So this is a whole phenomenon partly developed out of the possibility for forming connection using these cultural repertoire in Southeast Asia. But the Huiguan go way back in China as well. And there were hundreds uh, there that developed. When I talk to my students, many of them don't know about clan associations or don't have any desire to join. (laughs) Um, What does the future hold for clan associations? I think it's a difficult question. Um, There's a lot of despair in some sectors and a lot of uh, decline uh, in membership and a a lot of aging of the membership, a very rapid aging of the membership, and a great difficulty in bringing younger people in, Mm -hmm. in many of the Huiguan that we visited. Um, On the other hand, the, the, some of the more active Huiguan are amongst the few places that are trying to expand the teaching of dialects again in Singapore. Uh, so the Chaozhou Huiguan has courses in Chaozhou, uh, Diuju, and uh, Fujian Huiguan teaches Hokkien. Um, it's very hard to find those kinds of resources elsewhere in Singapore these days. Uh, and in some ways, they're again sort of, it's the last <laughs> chance to uh, provide a lifeline for these dialects before they completely die out. So if they can continue in that way and expand those kinds of linguistic and cultural uh, activities, they may be able to bring more younger people back in to the Huiguan as a kind of cultural conduit. Uh, if they can figure out ways to interest younger people in the kinds of networking that they're doing in China, they may be able to bring sort of middle-aged or uh, entrepreneurs back into their organizations. People who would be networking anyway, Yeah, and this is another avenue for that networking. Right, and it's quite a specific one tied back to specific regions of China where they have a really extensive knowledge, local knowledge of of business circumstances, uh, resources, and, and, and the local political scene. So they can provide a lot of information that other groups or other international companies might not have. Uh, especially at the local level. So from that point of view, they do still have a potential uh, role in economic networking, business networking, and within, especially with China. After learning so much about the role of clan associations in connecting migrants with their previous homes and helping them make a new home in a foreign land, I turn the question of clan associations back to Qingmei, who migrated to Singapore like so many Chinese before her. So this episode is about clan associations. And when we first started talking about this, brainstorming this episode, um, you mentioned that you never joined a clan association. Yeah. And you never imagined joining one. Mm. Um, Can you tell me why? And follow-up question is, now that you know about them, would you consider joining? 
Uh, okay, uh, so for the first question on why I have not heard about clanatalization, I think it's because um, my experience of settling down into Singapore never really required a clan association because things are taken care of um, mostly by the government already. Or by your parents. Yeah, or by my parents. Right. Yeah. Um, getting help from clan association is not something that had crossed my mind, to be very honest. And on the question of whether I would consider joining a clan association, I think um, I am interested in learning more about how they want to promote Chinese culture. But yeah, that that's going to be the intention of me joining. So I'm not there to seek help, but more mm. like to learn about Chinese culture in mm. Singapore. So I guess the motivation of joining itself is different from what previous generation of migrants um, consider. How does a foreign land become your homeland? Migrants need information social networks, job prospects, as well as practical things like familiar food to not only survive, but thrive while they live and work far from home. In Singapore, clan associations long served these purposes. But as times changed and migrants found other sources for such necessities, clan associations became less vital. Indeed, in my own experience as a migrant to Singapore nine years ago, I did not need any such groups. Perhaps a century ago, I would have turned to the exclusive American club to help me settle into my new life here. Instead, I just used the internet and my new colleagues to help me adjust. Much like Qingmei, for me, Singapore became home gradually, almost as an afterthought. So perhaps the most important element to making home is not the social networks or the information that helps one settle in, but what that Tang Dynasty official said, a foreign land will become a homeland with enough time. This episode was written and produced by Leong Qingmei, with help from To Jiahan and me. Our sound engineers were Johan Tan and David Chu. Special thanks go to the Hang Jai Wang Clan Association and Professor Kenneth Dean for sharing their insights on clan associations. Thanks also to Dr. Sen Guo Chuan for providing Qingmei with a historical overview of clan associations. Please visit our blog, where we have transcripts of all our episodes, photos of the places we feature, including some 360-degree photos, as well as links to news and academic articles on every topic. It's at tinyurl.com slash home on the dot. Thank you for listening. <laughs>